In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, amen. So also faith, by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. The Bible is very clear if there is one indispensable quality in the Christian life. If there is one element that more than any other marks out the true follower of Jesus. If there is one essential channel of salvation without which no man, no woman can ever hope to see the kingdom of God and it's obvious that essential quality or element is faith. Over and over again, the biblical writers speak of the necessity of faith, the power of faith, the gift of faith. St. Paul, writing to the Ephesians in chapter 2, said that it is by grace through faith that we are saved. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 declares that we walk by faith and not by sight. Hebrews 11 says that without faith, it is impossible to please God. And Jesus, speaking to his disciples in Matthew chapter 17, said that if we have faith the size of a mustard seed, we will be able to move mountains. In the New Testament alone, that word faith, in its various forms, can be found no less than 232 separate times. And it's why that great prince of preachers, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, once characterized faith as the queen bee of Christian virtues. He said, if you get faith into the hive, all of the other virtues, temperance, hope, love, etc., will follow in attendance. Well, if that's true, if faith really is the essential element, then what exactly is faith? When the Bible speaks of possessing faith, what exactly does it mean? Richard Dawkins, the world's most famous, or perhaps I should say infamous, skeptic and atheist, has said that faith is nothing more than the great cop-out. Faith, he said, is the great excuse to evade the need to think and evaluate evidence. Faith, he said, is belief in spite of, even perhaps because of, a lack of evidence. Well, is that true? Is Dawkins correct? Do we Christians tend to opt for faith simply because we lack evidence? Well, this morning I want us to take a deeper dive into this very important subject of faith, what it is, what it's really all about. And as we do, I want us to focus on three areas in particular. First, I want us to take a look at the nature of faith. Second, I want us to consider the object of faith. And finally, I want us to understand what it is to have a living faith. Now, let me be very clear right from the beginning. In a culture and a time like ours, when there are so many competing ideas, notions, and beliefs about practically everything, the appropriate place to begin a discussion about the nature of faith, what Christian faith is, is by first being very specific as to what Christian faith is not. Christian faith, contrary to what Richard Dawkins has suggested, is not mere whimsy. It's not just hope against hope. It's not just wishful thinking. Faith 
when you stop and think about it, is actually the most reasonable thing in the world. Every single one of us here today has faith in one thing or another, and what's more, we exercise that faith on a daily basis. If you don't believe me, just think about something as commonplace or mundane as getting on an airplane. Now, I'm going to assume that most people here today at one point or another have been on a plane. Well, when you make the decision to get on an aircraft, that is a decision that requires a tremendous amount of faith. First of all, you have to have faith in the manufacturer of the aircraft, don't you? Faith that they built this thing according to standard, that there are no major design flaws. In addition to this, you have to have faith in the ground crew, those people who service the aircraft. You have to have faith that they've checked all of the gauges and the landing gear and the wings. You have to have faith, certainly, in the flight crew, pilot and the co-pilot, faith that they're duly qualified to operate such an expensive and complex piece of machinery. And then on top of all of these people and all of these things, you have to have faith in the air traffic controllers, those men and women who are responsible for ensuring that there are no mid-air collisions, especially at a busy airport like O'Hare or JFK. See, when you get on an airplane, that requires a tremendous amount of faith, and it's faith why? It is faith precisely because, let's face it, folks, there are no guarantees. We assume when we get on an airplane that we are going to reach our destination safe and sound. But again, there are no guarantees. There is always the possibility, be it ever so slight, that we may not. On January 15, 2009, U.S. Airways Flight 1549 departed New York's LaGuardia Airport en route to Charlotte, North Carolina. Everybody on board that plane assumed that they were going to reach their destination safe and sound. In fact, they'd been told that they would land ahead of schedule. Well, let me tell you something. They landed ahead of schedule. But it was nothing like anyone had imagined. Three minutes into that flight, at an altitude of 2,800 feet, that plane struck a flock of Canadian geese, which blew out both of its engines. And had it not been for the skill and the quick action of the pilot, Captain Chesley Sullenberger, who landed that plane in the Hudson River, the results would have been absolutely catastrophic. You see, when you get on a plane, that plane or any plane, it requires faith. And yet I ask you, how many of us, even after that accident, even after we saw those dramatic photographs of that huge plane floating in the muddy waters of the Hudson next to the Manhattan skyline, vowed that we would never fly again. I suspect very few of us. No, we continue to buy our tickets, pack our bags, get on airplanes, and we exercise faith every single time we do it. And is that faith unreasonable? Well, not necessarily. Given our own past experiences, given the overall safety record of the American airline industry, it's probably a safe bet, not a guaranteed thing, but a safe bet to continue to buy our tickets, pack our bags, and fly. Well, this, you see, is what the Bible means by faith. 
The Greek word that is translated in the New Testament is the word pistis, and it means to have confidence in something, trust in something. And it is a confidence and it is a trust that is based upon a past trustworthiness. In other words, it's not faith in spite of evidence, it's faith on the basis of evidence, but it is faith simply because there are no guarantees. But of course, that's just the problem, isn't it? As human beings, what you and I long for is absolute security. We want absolute certainty, don't we? We somehow think that we should be able to prove absolutely everything that we believe. But folks, I'm here to tell you this morning that that search for absolute certainty, absolute security, it is a vain quest. There is nothing, nothing of value in this life that can be proven absolutely Absolute certainty is reserved for a very small category of beliefs that are self-evident, like 2 plus 2 equals 4. But let's face it, those aren't the sorts of things that make life worth living, are they? You ask yourself this morning, what makes life worth living? It's things like the love of a spouse, the loyalty of your friends, the affection of your children, The belief that every human life is of value and importance. These are the things that are worth living for, fighting for, even dying for. And yet not a single one of them can be proven absolutely beyond the shadow of a doubt. You may think that your spouse loves you. You may even have evidence to that effect, but it cannot be proven absolutely. You have to take it on faith. Alexis de Tocqueville in his classic work, Democracy in America, put it this way. He said, there is no philosopher, no thinker in the world so great, but that he believes a million things on faith and accepts by faith a great many more truths than he demonstrates. Heck, even Richard Dawkins has faith. Regardless of what he says, can he prove absolutely the things that he believes? That there is no God, that the universe is meaningless, that human life is valueless? No, he can't prove those things. He takes them on faith. Which means the only thing, folks, that makes faith reasonable or unreasonable is where you place your faith. And that's my second point this morning. The object of our faith. When Jesus told His disciples in Matthew chapter 17 that if they had faith the size of a mustard seed, they would be able to move mountains, what He was trying to teach them was that when it comes to faith, it's not so much a matter of quantity as it is quality. Or to put it more directly, it's not how much faith you have, it's where you place that faith that will make all the difference. Two years ago, my family and I were vacationing in the Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia. And on the recommendation of a friend, we went zip lining. Oh, my friend said, you're going to love this. He said, spectacular views of the mountains, an adrenaline rush, great time with your kids. 
Well, I don't mind telling you, from the moment that I arrived at that zipline facility, my blood pressure and my anxiety level began to rise. First thing we had to do when we arrived there was I had to sign a waiver releasing this company from all liability in the event of personal property damage, dismemberment, or death. <laughs> then secondly, while we're waiting in line, waiting our turn, all harnessed up, I couldn't help but notice that every so many feet there were these signs that said that every participant needed to be in excellent health. No back or neck injuries, heart conditions, chronic illnesses. And I'm sitting there thinking to myself, I don't think I have any of those things, but I'm beginning to wonder now. <laughs> and then finally, it was my turn to get up there on the platform. And for the first time, I got a good look at the cable. <laughs> this cable that was supposed to sustain my weight on this 30-mile-per-hour, 800-foot-long journey above the treetops. And I just had a big lunch, and that looked like a little cable. And I began to have serious doubts. I thought, this is crazy. What in the world are we doing? I turned around to my wife and said, we're getting out of here. But the man on the platform assured me he assured me that in the 10 years that this company had been in operation, never once had they had a single casualty. What's more, he said, hundreds of people rode that cable every single day without incident. I said, well, can you guarantee our safety? He said, mister, I can't guarantee anything. You're just going to have to take my word for it. And so, on the word of a perfect stranger, I shut my eyes, held my breath, and took the plunge. And here I am today to tell the tale. <laughs> well, this, you see, is why placing your faith in God is the only truly reasonable option. Because God alone is absolutely trustworthy. 1 John chapter 5 says that if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. John's point being that you and I place our faith in other people all the time, don't we? We enter into relationships with them, covenants with them, legal arrangements with them. Sometimes, on the word of a perfect stranger, we'll throw ourselves off a platform and go ziplining across the treetop. And we do all of this in spite of the fact that we know that other human beings are frail, fallen, and sometimes untrustworthy. But what about God? God's character, you see, is nothing like that. God is absolutely trustworthy. He is the God of truth, which means you can always take His word at face value. That's not always true of other human beings, is it? He is the faithful God. That is to say that He always finishes what He starts. That's certainly not true of other human beings. He is the omnipotent God. That is to say He is the Almighty. Nothing can rise up to frustrate or shock Him or thwart His plans or purposes for our lives. But that's not true of other human beings. 
God is absolutely trustworthy. And we know this is His character. Why? Because He has sent His Son as evidence of that fact, to die and rise again for us and for our salvation. This is why the New Testament defines faith as the assurance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. It's because God's promises, my friends, are just that. They are God's promises. And even though we still hope for them, they have not yet all come to pass, we nevertheless are assured that they will come to pass. We're convinced of that precisely because they are God's promises grounded in God's unchanging, faithful, and omnipotent character. Think of it in terms of a title or a deed to a piece of property. If someone dies and leaves you a piece of property and you acquire the title or deed to that property, does that property belong to you? Of course it does. Even if you've never seen it, even if you've never stepped foot on it, that piece of paper is the assurance of the thing hoped for. It's the evidence of the thing not seen. Well, when you place your faith in God because of His absolutely trustworthy character, your faith, your trust in Him is the title deed. It is the deed that assures you of all of His promises, all of His grace, all of His mercy, all of His salvation. Let me ask you a question this morning. Where are you placing your faith? You're placing it in something or in someone. Where are you placing your faith? Are you placing it in other human beings? You are sorely going to be disappointed. Are you placing it in yourself? You are going to be disappointed. Or are you placing it in the only one who can be trusted because he is the same yesterday, today, and forever? That hymn we just sang got it right. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. So what's the nature of faith? Well, the nature of faith is trust. It's based upon past trustworthiness. What is the object of our faith? If we're reasonable, we'll place our faith in the only one who is absolutely trustworthy. And that brings us then to the final point. What it means to have a living faith. In today's epistle lesson from James the apostle writes these words beginning in verse 14. He said, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. You may recall that it was this section of Scripture that so upset Martin Luther, the famous reformer, that he wanted to take the book of James and tear it out of the New Testament and throw it away. James thought that, or Luther thought, that James was undermining the great doctrine of justification. 
The message that had changed Luther's life. The message that we're saved by grace through faith and not by works. And as a consequence, he didn't like James. He called this a right straw epistle. Meaning that it didn't have the weight of the other New Testament works. But folks, this just goes to show us that sometimes even great men like Martin Luther can be short-sighted. Because James was not arguing for faith plus works. James was arguing for a faith that works. Now let me repeat that because it's very important. James was not arguing for faith plus works. He was arguing for a faith that works. Reminds me of the story of the young man who was living in Detroit, Michigan. He was standing on the street corner one day, and a woman drove up in an automobile. She stopped in front of an old stone church. She got out, and she walked up to the door, and the young man crawled out, cried out to her. He said, hey, lady, tell me something. Does that church work? Now, that sounds like an odd question, doesn't it? Does that church work? But think about the context. Here was a young man who lived in a depressed city, in a depressed neighborhood. Everywhere he turned, he saw things that no longer worked. Things that perhaps once had a function but no longer did. He saw broken down cars. He saw busted television sets, abandoned shops. And what he wanted to know was, was this church any different? Did it work? Did it make a difference? Well, James is asking his readers the same question. He's not arguing for anything new here. James is simply teaching what the entire New Testament teaches, that when a man or a woman actually places their faith, actually places their trust in Jesus Christ, a miracle occurs. The old passes away. They become a new creation. And James is saying if that transformation has happened in your life, it should be evident in the way you live. Sinclair Ferguson, who was for many years the senior minister at the First Presbyterian Church in Columbia, tells a story of how on one occasion he and a friend were sitting at a wedding reception, and a waitress went by with one of those huge trays, you know, piled high with plates and dirty dishes and so forth, and she slipped. And of course, what followed was this spectacular crash of cutlery and glassware and plates. The woman was sprawled out all across the floor. And Ferguson turned to his friend and he said, poor girl, someone ought to help her. At which point his friend snapped back, well, Ferguson, if you think so, why don't you help her? And Ferguson said it was like a dagger to the heart because he knew it was right. That expression of concern, that expression of compassion, it was meaningless, wasn't it? It was worthless. It was dead. It was dead because real compassion, real concern has hands and feet. It gets up. It helps the girl to her feet. It cleans up the mess. And James says the same thing is true of a genuine faith. It works. It makes a difference. Look at how he puts it in verse 19. 
He said, someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. But even the demons believe that and shudder. It is interesting, isn't it? That the first people oftentimes to recognize Jesus while he was here on this earth were demon-possessed people, as in today's gospel lesson. Oftentimes, the demon-possessed recognized Jesus as the Son of God even before the disciples. In other words, they had faith. It was faith of a sort. But obviously, it was not a living faith. It was not the kind of faith that made a difference. My friends, Christian faith can never be separated from Christian obedience. Faith in Christ can never be separated from obedience to Christ because Christian faith is vital, it is living, it is active. And so today we need to all stop and examine our lives. It's a profitable but sometimes difficult thing to do. And we need to ask ourselves, where am I placing my faith today? And if I claim to place my faith in Jesus Christ alone for my eternal destiny, then ask yourself this question, does my faith work? Is my faith making a difference? Or is it the dead faith of the demons? In 1866, a young man, about 22 years of age, by the name of John Samus, went to a meeting of the YMCA at Terre Haute, Indiana. And there, for the first time, he heard the good news of Jesus Christ. He heard the gospel. And he was given the opportunity to take his faith and place it in the Savior, all that he had. And John Samus did. And for the next 51 years, he would faithfully serve Christ in the kingdom as a Presbyterian minister. Some years later, he wrote these words, which I think are the summation of John Samus's life, but James would say are the summation of the life of every man, every woman who has a living faith in Jesus. Samus wrote, When we walk with the Lord... And the light of his word, what a glory he sheds on our way. While we do his good will, he abides with us still and with all who will trust and obey. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. May God grant us to be men and women of faith, a robust faith, a faith that makes a difference, a faith that works. Let us pray. Father, we give you thanks and praise for the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ 
who has proven his trustworthy character by mounting the arms of the cross and rising again for us. Grant us the gift of faith this day that we might put all that we have, all of our time, treasure, intellect, everything we have into him, into his service, that our faith may be shown to the world to be a lively faith, a faith that makes a difference. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.